Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Let's turn to the book of Corinthians today. We will be in the third chapter. And the title of my sermon is, Because We Are Family. I want to start reading in the fifth verse. Paul says, what is Apollos, really? Or what is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, and each of us in ministry the Lord gave us. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused it to grow. You might want to take particular note of that. That will be an important point this morning. So, neither the one who plants counts for anything, nor the one who waters, but God who causes the growth. Another important point. The one who plants and the one who waters work as one, but each will receive his reward according to his work. We are co-workers belonging to God. You are God's field. You are God's building. Now, that's a bridging verse there where Paul is using multiple metaphors here, and he bridges immediately from the metaphor of the agricultural metaphor that he's using now into an architectural metaphor that he's using. It goes from you're a field to suddenly he says, and by the way, let's just suggest you're a building as well. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, but someone else builds on that. You can see how he's converting over from the agricultural now to the uh, architectural metaphor. And each one must be careful how he builds. Another one to underscore. Be careful how you build. For no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what kind of work each has done. If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward. If someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We ought to all have a curiosity at the very minimum about what Paul is telling us about here because it's futuristic. It lies in my future. It lies in your future. If you are not saved, if you don't know for a fact when you die you're going to heaven, this part doesn't necessarily apply to you. But I'm going to assume that most of us are saved this morning. Uh, Not that if you're on your journey to get saved, I'm not interested in that as well, but we want you to pull you into the family some way. But it's futuristic for us. One of these days, we will be participants in what Paul has just described. We will be there as the fire will be applied to our works with reference to the works we have done 
for God's kingdom and probably within the context of what we know as the church, the works we do concerning the church, but in a broader sense, the works of the kingdom. And the works that we do, when God sets a torch to it, if there's anything left that isn't consumed, that's going to prove the quality, the enduring quality of the works that we did here on earth, which, by the way, is right now. So the works you're doing for the kingdom have some sort of a certain quality to them. Are they enduring? Will they stand the test of the fire? That's something that you would do well to ask yourself every day. What I've accomplished today for God, will it stand the test? Or have I accomplished anything at all for God today? Will I have anything for Him to test? Now let's go back, to, as I start this off, to observing the fact that God, that, that Paul uses three metaphors in referring to the church. The metaphor of the field, uh, the metaphor of the building, and then he finally narrows that down. Not only are you a building, but then he goes to the metaphor, you are specifically a temple. And as concerns the field, as I work my way through these three, as, as we get into this sermon this morning, uh, I see within that metaphor of the field that Paul brings up the aspect of a certain amount of cooperation. If we would read that again, we would see that. One waters, one sows. We all have our work to do. And in that cooperative spirit of advancing the kingdom, I'm going to do certain things you're not willing to do or maybe not equipped to do, and vice versa. You have the ability to do certain things I cannot do or I'm not equipped to do. But all of us together are advancing the kingdom. So let me make these observations from this agricultural metaphor that not only are we cooperating in this work, but think about, first of all, you're never alone in your work. Paul says we are co-laborers with God. Now, not only am I not alone because you're helping, you're doing something I can do, but I'm not alone because God is always there with me. I may feel quite often I'm all alone. That's not unusual. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest prophets of all time, specifically one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah hit the skids in his life when he felt all alone and was complaining to God, there's nobody left down here doing your work but me. But he wasn't alone, and God reminded him he'd reserved several people to himself, hundreds of people to himself, that Elijah was not alone. But that doesn't stop the fact that in working for God, sometimes you feel like you're all alone. Many of you here, you have something you're doing for the kingdom. And probably in your lonely, quiet moments, you've thought, God, I'm all alone doing this. I'm not getting a lot of help. Now, my wife and I started a little youth and children's outreach ministry in a tiny little mountain community 
out in California when we pastored there. The church had a Christian school, but it was not viable, and it was pulling thousands of dollars out of the church that the tiny church could not uh, stand the weight of that, and finally we had to close that Christian school down. So they had built a, a nice big gymnasium out behind the church. The church sat right in the heart of this little downtown community of 3,000 people, right on Main Street. So it was a very obvious location, obvious church, obvious gymnasium. But when we closed it down, one deacon was fretting and stewing, what are we going to do with this huge gym? Can we sell it to somebody? I said, no, 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 no. This is the first time we've had any opportunity to do something with it besides the Christian school. Let's just see what God has for us. So my wife and I started an outreach because in that little community, and I'm using hyperbole, you understand, but you could almost put the key in the door and the community could hear the tumblers turn because when we opened the doors, kids just showed up. They might be walking by and see the lights were on, pop their head in, and discover the gym's open, get on the phone, start calling kids. However this came down, it didn't take long once you opened the doors for kids to find out it was open, and they just loaded it. I thought, is this not ready-made ministry or what? They are drawn to this. So we started this. And for several years, uh, we packed the kids in on Tuesday night. It was the younger age kind of like we do here at TNT. It may have been third grade and under, fourth grade and under, something like that. Uh, fifth grade, I can't remember. Then the Thursday night was the uh, junior high, high school kids. Saturday night was the, the men's outreach. Three nights that we did that, I finally farmed Saturday night to somebody else. Ann and I did Tuesday and Thursday. We couldn't get any help. Had one man that had a heart for this because he had grown up in, in very uh, adverse circumstances with a broken family and, and uh, being penniless, and he had such a heart for kids, and he helped. So it was my wife and I and, and this one man, when he could make it. I'm telling that because I want you to understand that there are times when you can be involved in something that you feel like we're not getting any help. I begged for help. I, I, I told Sunday school teachers, I've got a great fishing hole. I have got, you can fill your Sunday school class up if you will just come on Wednesday night, make relationship with these kids, schedule to go pick them up, bring them. I, I, in that little building on Tuesday nights with my wife and me and sometimes one other man, we would have a hundred screaming kids running around in there and two screaming adults. It was a sight to behold, and we would go home and say, why can't we get any help? But you know, really, if you're going to work for the kingdom, at the bare minimum, God is always there. Number two, let's observe by this, you, you can't do it all by yourself. You might feel like you're doing it all by yourself. You're not. <clears throat> or you may want to try and do it all by yourself, and you can't. But each labor has really limited specific tasks, and it takes the combined effort of everybody to get the job done. So I don't know if you're a sower, 
I don't know if you're a waterer. I don't know where you fit into this. But maybe even you're thinking, what little bit I can do doesn't matter. So why should I do it? Because it takes everybody doing a little bit of something to move the kingdom forward. Nobody can do it all. Nobody's equipped to do it all. We need, we need everybody. And even in switching to the building metaphor, Paul reiterates this point. There's a need for all to cooperate towards one goal. As Paul states, one waters, one sows, and now he says one sets the foundation and others build on that foundation. So there's a process. Everybody is involved in some phase of this. And then we also, under this first metaphor, understand that Paul says very clearly, God gives the increase. Now, the farmer would understand Paul's subtle implications here because a farmer has to use all of his skill and understanding that he has gained in his work if he has any hope of success. I'm not a farmer. I don't know how many of you are. I don't know how many of you have grown up on a farm. If you have, you have an advantage over me. I don't know a lot about farming. I would fail as a farmer with my knowledge as I have it right now. I don't understand everything about the timing of the planting of the crop or the timing of the harvesting. I don't understand everything about the treatment of the land and the treatment of the crop. I don't, I, I would, I would, I'd be miserable at this. But the farmer understands those things. And the farmer also understands something else. As much as they know about farming more than what I know, they know that they're not in control of the rain, the drought, the sunshine. There's things that they cannot control. So the wise farmer understands when I have done all I know how to do and I have plant planted appropriately and I have done what I need to do to fertilize and prepare the ground. And I, I've, if, if God doesn't take care of this for me, I'm not going to have a yield this year. Many years there have been where people have put their crop in the field. It burned up before it came time to harvest. Or it was too late to get it in to have a good yield at the end. Or there was not enough time when the bad weather set in to get the crop out. There's a lot of things that go into this that are beyond the scope of the authority and the ability of the farmer to make this all successful. So God gives the increase. Now when Paul applies that to the kingdom work, I can sow, I can water, I can weed, but God gives the increase. Not me or not any one pastor or not any particular individual in the kingdom, God still has to give the increase in spite of my best efforts. God still has to be the final factor in this. Now, we make that application to the church that one sows, one waters, but there are circumstances far beyond my control that impact the, the development of the kingdom, the advancement of the kingdom, the growth of the church, the expansion. Ultimately, when it's all said and done, we have to have those favorable circumstances from God in a spiritual sense. The plenty of sunshine, plenty of rain, you have to have everything come together. So for any minister, any pastor, that would ever be tempted to take credit 
for building the kingdom because of their efforts, they have to understand if God's not involved in it, it just doesn't work right. Now, there's a couple of things I have to qualify about that. Can you build a congregation without God's help? Well, certainly you can. Jim Jones did, and he took them down to Guyana and killed them all, made them drink Kool-Aid. You can build, but you can't build anything that is legitimately of the kingdom, anything of any real, positive, spiritual impact. Sure you can. And even Solomon acknowledged that in the 127th Psalm when he said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So yeah, you can build, but if it's not built by the hand of God, it's a total waste of time as far as God is concerned. Then we go to the building metaphor. And this one, if the first one speaks to me of cooperation, which we have to have, then the second building metaphor speaks to me of craftsmanship. As Paul designates himself, now I'm the foundation man. How many of you understand? Most of you, I'm sure, do. But if you're going to build a house, you had better have a good foundation. If you don't have a good foundation, it's all going to be a mess with the passing of time. I've known of places where houses have been built on poor foundations because they were in a hurry to develop uh, a subdivision and it was not things were not prepared properly uh, and once the houses went up years later everybody started having severe foundation problems because the soil was not appropriate I've seen that happen in the building industry you got to have a good place good something solid to put the foundation on good solid foundation when you put it in and Paul says I built the foundation so he was confident that it was a good solid foundation but on the other hand Paul doesn't fail to understand that Christ is the foundation of the church. But Paul's the one that helped install Christ as the theological foundation of the church. So when he's teaching and teaching and preaching the cross, as we've been talking about, and preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Paul sees himself as taking the foundation and promoting that and setting that down as the theological, spiritual foundation of the churches that he planted. Now, there's two ways to build on the foundation typified metaphorically by this example of you are the building. And one way of building on that foundation is using good materials, enduring materials, gold, silver, precious stones, and that refers to quality workmanship. And the second way of building on this foundation is wood, hay, and stubble, things that are very uh, weak and, un and not enduring, and it speaks to us of shoddy workmanship. Now, God ensures that His church can survive the worst things that come against it. The church can survive the flood. The church can survive the fire, the storm. Everything that comes against it, all of the opposition, the church can survive. But you have to understand there have been seasons when the church has suffered a setback for a time because the builders were using shoddy materials. Overall, did the church survive? Of course it did. It's still here today. But it suffers eras of setback. That would be one of the most notable ones we know is the Dark Ages. That was a huge setback 
from the church. Because if you look at the history of the church in a very broad overview, a quick overview, you see a tiny church starting in the book of Acts that flourishes and grows and exists under basically increasingly hard and difficult persecution for the first 300 to 400 years. It was during that time that the church just exploded in growth. It grows well under persecution. I don't know why we are fearing persecution so much. It appears to be a good thing for the church. We just don't personally like the inconvenience of it, do we? And then suddenly whenever the uh, head of the Roman Empire becomes uh, sympathetic to the church instead of aggressive against the church and begins to grant the church favor and lifts the persecution, the church actually begins to wither and die from about the 5th century on uh, until it finally enters what we know as the Dark Ages, which appropriately was a spiritually dark era for the church. Uh, it had become so powerless, so weak, so impotent, because having curried the favor of the leaders of the world, the, the, the nations of the world, the church became a mess during that time. Corruption that would just shock you coming from the leadership of the church that didn't exist just as isolated examples of corruption happening in the church, but deep-seated corruption that set into the leader of the church from generation to generation, decade after decade, century after century. Shocking perversions coming from the leadership of the church. As it ceased to exist under persecution, entered into a favorable time in the world and just fell to pieces. God ensures the church can survive those things. But why did the church go through that? Because people were building the church with shoddy materials, with corrupt leadership, wood, hay, and stubble at the very minimum. Careless men and women, while they cannot destroy the church through their incompetence and neglect, it's very clear that they will discover on that day that Paul is talking about that all of their labor was a total waste of time and a total affront to God. And Paul says they will suffer loss. Now, that would be the very minimum. Those who were evil and wicked uh, would do more than just suffer loss and then be saved. They would be totally destroyed. We know that. But if there's anybody who's just shoddy workmanship, they still believe in God, but they're not really taking good care of advancing the kingdom, building God's kingdom, building the church, and they're using shoddy workmanship, Paul says something very curious here. They will suffer loss even though they will ultimately be saved. And one uh, may question why it matters if they are ultimately saved, but the language Paul uses indicates that it's probably something we ought to care deeply about whenever people become so shallow as to say, well, at least if I just get there, that's good enough for me. Now, you've probably heard that from time to time. I don't know. Maybe you've said that. All I care about is just as long as I make it in the end. Well, Paul is indicating, you know what? There's something you may ought to care about even more than just the basics of as long as I get there. 
That's like saying, if I can just crawl across the finish line, just eke my way in, just qualify, I'll be happy. But Paul says there's something else to be concerned about, and that is when you get there, you're going to suffer loss. Now, I don't know what that loss is, and I don't know what it feels like, but Paul was very intentional in using that language. So if Paul says there's going to be a loss, I think that it's something that we will care about at that time. Well, at least I'm saved. I, don't, I think what Paul is inferring is nobody on that day is going to rejoice and say, well, at least I made it, because he said there's something else playing into this here. If we take that seriously now, in this day and age, while we're walking, living, and breathing, I think we will, we will apply ourselves more faithfully to what we do for the kingdom every day, because somewhere in our future, there's a gain or a loss, even if we make it. That's important should be important to us. Now, Paul, in the third metaphor, narrows the building down to the temple. And he says in the 16th verse, do you not know that God's temple, that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit lives in you? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Yes, they know that. If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy which is what you are. Now, let me tell you the way that people sometimes use that passage, interpret that passage, apply that passage, that it's wrong. So you will be responsible from this day forward for not making that mistake because you know better. At least you will. Uh-uh, no plugging your ears. You will be responsible. The way you have heard this applied wrongly is when somebody perhaps has said to somebody else, don't you know what you're doing to your body? It, it may be the use of, of drugs. It may be used of, of uh, something like alcohol, tobacco, anything that we know has destructive uh, effects on the body. And it, it's always been uh, around an element within the church for somebody to make a judgment about that. Don't you know you're destroying the body? And whoever destroys the body, God's going to destroy them. And they're referring back to this verse in the third chapter of Corinthians. Now, here's the problem with that. Is Paul is talking about you, the church. He's writing to the church of Corinth. He's not writing to an individual. He's writing to the church of Corinth. And he's telling the church of Corinth, that congregation, you are the field. And we are laborers working the field, and what we produce from this field becomes the church. And he says, you're the building. And I laid the foundation, and other people come along, and they build on that foundation, and you are the building that we are building. And then he says, and you are the temple. So he doesn't all of a sudden stop talking about the church and start talking about an individual and what habit they may have. Now, there are many reasons for us to take care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that shows up in the sixth chapter of Corinthians. We'll get to that later on in our series. But that's where he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whose temple you are? But he doesn't say in that particular passage where he is talking about the body that whoever destroys his temple, him will God destroy. So you may destroy your body, but I think it, that, that abuse carries its own penalty. Because I, I had... Uh, Somebody write me a letter recently. Uh, they wanted me to promise I would come and do their funeral. They lived several hours away from here. They remembered me 
from years ago when I was on the evangelistic field, and they somehow had found my name, found my contact information, wrote me and said, would you come and do my funeral when I die? Well, see, the, the, the first problem with this is I don't know when you're going to die and what I'm going to be doing. You don't either. So I can't really promise you that the day you die, I'm going to be there. My wife and I might be on a cruise somewhere down in the river. I know you people are all prepared for the Caribbean, but I know our limitations. So in, in the process of this whole lengthy letter, she wrote, and she said, and besides, she says, I've uh, had a problem with, with cigarettes for much of my life. And she said, I've tried and tried and tried and can't get over, can't get victory over this. And she says, do you think I'm going to go to hell because I smoked? Now, I've matured a lot in my ministry. My cousin from North Carolina, who I used to go out and hold revivals in many different states, I ended up preaching in North Carolina a number of times, and I was, before I was married, uh, I was holding revival out there, and she and I were walking down this country path because they lived out deep in the country. You had to take a mud path down to get to their house. So they, were, they were really out. We were walking down this, this path, and she's been a smoker all her life. Her dad was a smoker. Her brother's a smoker. The whole family, they, they, they own stock in the tobacco industry probably. I don't know. So she challenged me. She said, uh, do you think I'm going to hell because I, I smoke? Now, that was, I was 20, 21, 22 years old. Now, I saw my cousin again for the first time in many, 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 many years. Uh, just a couple of years ago when her brother in Kansas said he died, and I went down there to the funeral. And she had to bring that up. Now, you know how long that's been? And she says, Scott, do you remember when we were walking together? And I asked you, if I smoke, am I going to hell? Do you remember what you told me? And I said, yes, but let's not talk about that right now. You told me, no, but it'll make you smell like you've been there. I said, Susan, stop. Stop. We don't get to see each other but every 20 years. Why are we going to bring up stuff like this? So this lady writes in the letter and says, do you think I'm going to? Well, I actually called the lady back and talked with her, and she wanted an answer to her question. And I said, you know, God understands. If you're, if you're trying your best, God understands. You realize what you're doing to your body. Uh, and God's concerned about that. But the one thing we cannot do is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and say, God says if you destroy this, body, uh, this temple that he will destroy you because it's not talking about this temple. It's talking about the church. Now, this is the next important point you have to get out of this because here's what Paul is saying that is so sobering. Whoever destroys the church... Him will God destroy. That is what it's saying, and that's what scares me. It ought to set us all straight this morning. Whoever destroys this temple, he's telling the church, him will God destroy. You know why? Because God has called us to be builders, not destroyers. The obvious question Paul is asking the people in the church of Corinth is this. How can you possibly believe 
You people who are squabbling and, and fighting and bickering and in division, how can you people at Corinthians, how can you possibly believe that what you're doing is building the kingdom? It's not. May I see a show of hands? How many of you have been a part of a church that had a lot of strife in it and inward fighting? Can I see? Just see. There's been some of you here. Those of you who haven't lifted your hands, you're blessed. If you've been a part of church for very long and you haven't been a part of a, a good church fight, you're blessed. Because those who have been in it, it's sickening. It's a depressing place to walk into. It doesn't go away in one week. We're not talking about a little, a little squabble. We're talking about ongoing division and strife in church where every Sunday... There's something that goes on, and it gets to the point where you can tell where the line divides because they sit on opposite sides of the church, depending on which side of this problem you're on. It's sickening, it's destroying. And Paul speaks to that kind of a situation to the Corinth congregation and says, whoever tears up the building, the church, the temple of God, you're going to have to answer for God for the problems you caused in the church. They weren't building, they were destroying. And the warning is grave. The temple belongs to God. The church belongs to God. It's His property. It's his, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And no person has a right to wreck the temple of God. It's holy. Paul reiterates, it is holy. Now we come to the reward system. And Paul says in this, if I might reread this part, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, but someone else builds on it. Each one must be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Christ Jesus. And if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear. Now, the reward, you understand from this, is based on the quality of work and not the results. This is so different from how things work in real life. In fact, we are so heavily based on results that you can lose your job if you don't produce. Your employer is, not pro is probably not, I'm, I think I'm safe in saying, your employer is probably not set up with the mindset of coming in and saying, you know, <clears throat> you're doing great quality work. We're losing thousands of dollars a week because of you, but your work is great. Nor would they be interested if they're telling you how much you're costing the company for you to say, but you don't understand, I cross my T's, I dot my I's, I make sure everything is done in apple pie order, I am full of integrity, I haven't stole a dollar from you, and, and they say, I don't care, you're not getting the job, and we're losing money, you're out. They don't care about the quality of your work if the quality of your work is not making them money. Or they don't see any opportunity of the quality of work. You say, I'm never late, I'm a model employee, I don't care. We're losing money, you're not producing if you're a salesperson and you're not selling, you can argue all day long how well you get along with the customers, 
how you can get them to laugh with you and you just have a great old time. If you're not selling anything, it's not going to work because they want production. They want results. And it's so relieving to know that getting out of the way that the world operates thing, things, that Paul makes it very clear in God's economy, when the fire is put to the building materials, to the, to the quality of the workmanship, that it has nothing to do with results. Because, he'll tell us later on, you can't always measure the results. What he's going to measure is the quality of your work. I'm thinking, that's the employer I've been looking for all my life. The one who cares for how much you cared. The one who cares for how faithful you were. The one who cares for how honest and integrous you were. Even though you might stand before him and say, I don't have a whole lot to show for what I did. God says, that's not important to me because you sow you water, my job is to give the increase. In God's kingdom, your job is faithfulness. I've always had a heart for struggling pastors. I've misstated that. I haven't always had a heart. I didn't have a heart for struggling pastors when I was five years old. But in my ministry, in my life, I have developed a heart for struggling pastors. And one of the things I find that is most important for me to reiterate to struggling, discouraged pastors is God has not called you to success. God has called you to faithfulness. You know, it's all about size. It's all about numbers. When you stand before God... There is no questionnaire about how many people fill in the blank. The question will be, were you faithful to the end? Now, that's applying to ministers, but that applies to you, my friends. Whatever you're doing to work for the kingdom, maybe you're trying to measure your effectiveness by saying, God, I've been doing this all my life. I don't see any results from it. That's not what it's about. It's about being faithful, faithful to the end. The results are up to God. Number two, not all work is equally rewarded because not all work is equal in quality. Those who are building with wood, hay, and stubble are not going to get the reward of those who are building with quality workmanship, gold, silver, precious stone. Number three, your reward is given after it's all done. Now, this is the tough one. Because psychological tests have proven that most people do better when they are regularly and frequently rewarded. So in our culture, we have become accustomed to typically weekly paychecks. You may work someplace where they have modified that a little bit and you've come to accept that they only pay biweekly here. Maybe a few of you work someplace where you only get paid monthly. But you have to really know how to budget and start off with a little nest egg to get in where you're only paid monthly. But typically, what we like in our American culture is we like to work for a week and get a paycheck. We even find it difficult to forego that first paycheck so we can then have time for the bookkeepers to get the payroll done next week. So we've worked one week without a paycheck, then we get a 
paycheck the second week for the first week that we worked, and that just throws some people in a tizzy because they have to have their reward now. And it's because it's uh, hand-to-mouth, week-to-week. I want to be rewarded. The longer you work without being compensated, the more difficult it is. The longer you work without being compensated, the less motivated you are for working hard. Now, it's not to say you can't discipline yourself to work hard and faithfully when the pay is infrequent. You can. Contractors understand that. Contractors uh, can make a draw on their contract, and they can take very little for themselves, and when the contract is fulfilled, they can make a big draw at the end. That's their big payday. But very few contractors find people who will work for them that the contractor can convince them, you come work for me, and we will get this building done in six months, I'll pay you. And they walk away and say, I'm not working for you. I can't go six months without a paycheck. I want paid every week. Well, now, when I had a construction business, I paid my workers every week. None of them were interested in waiting until I got the big paycheck at the end to get their paycheck. They weren't even interested in waiting till one day late. They wanted it. When it was Friday, I want my paycheck. I've got my hammer and my tape in my hand, and I'm out of here if I'm not getting paid when I'm done. We just like that frequent compensation. You work, you get rewarded. You go to work for God, and you work, and you get nothing until you're dead. That's hard to process. Because really the reward that God gives doesn't come to the end. Now there might be a few flowers along the way you can smell. But that's not the reward. There might be a few things along the way that make you smile and make you happy and make you want to keep on going, but that's not the reward. That's just a little candy from time to time. So here we are working in God's kingdom, and Paul gives us this wonderful news. Guess what? You're going to work your entire life. When you die and get to the other side, then you'll find out what your paycheck is. And under those circumstances, you have to admit, it's hard to stay focused. It's hard to stay disciplined. It's hard to stay excited. (laughs) You work and you work. And say, where's my reward? It's over there. Well, what's it look like? We don't know. Not until God puts the big match to it. We don't know. It might be nothing. It might be a huge pile, but there might not be anything. We don't know. Boy, these are hard to motivate. But see, I'm not, I'm not motivated by the reward. Obviously, I can't be because I'm not getting any right now, and I don't know what it's going to be. So my motivation has to be something else. So why should I work for God? Because it all comes back to a vision of a man who hung on a cross in my place that took the nails and took the whip and loved me like nobody else could love me. And in view of that, I work for him. It can't be based on the reward. I have no concept of what that's going to be. But I labor for him because I love him.
because I'm overwhelmed at what he did for me. Which kind of bleeds over into my next point, only God knows the quality of her work. I, I would like to think of my work as high quality, but how much of them am I doing because of personal ambition? That's not pure quality workmanship. How much of it do we do because we like the notoriety? That's not quality workmanship. You, you know, the applause of man. How much do we do because we just get a buzz out of, out of making things happen? I do. I, I, like, I like to see the results of the work of my hands. I, I see something that, that uh, if, if it produces results, I feel pride in it. But how much of my work for the kingdom is pride? And so I've got all these ideas about what I've done and how faithful I've been. But when I get over there and God tests it, I'm going to be holding my breath. What is in that pile that really matters to God? Or was it all about me? Number five, we know from this passage about the fire that we're all going to be judged. The laborers in the field, the builders of the building, uh, the, the people how they treat the temple, we're all going to be judged. We, we tend to think of people only in ministry or church leadership, but the factor is we're all in some capacity doing the work that impacts the kingdom, either positively or negatively. If you're doing nothing, you're impacting the kingdom negatively because we've all been charged, every one of us following Christ, to do something to positively advance the kingdom. We're all contributing to the life or the death of the church or the kingdom. We'll all be judged where we stand before God for the quality of our contribution or the lack thereof to God's kingdom. That's coming. It's set in stone. The last few verses, and I conclude with this, Paul basically says, okay, so I said all that to say this. Guard against self-deception, each of you. This is verse 18. If someone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish so he can become wise. In other words, Paul's referring to the fact that they think people who think in God's ways are fools. And that's what Paul's saying. So become foolish. Think like God. Become foolish so that you can thus become wise. For the wisdom of this age is foolishness with God. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So, then no more boasting about mere mortals! Exclamation point. Everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. Everything belongs to you. He repeats that. You find when things are repeated in Scripture, it's for emphasis. Everything belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. Do you get it? Everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Paul draws these summary conclusions from what he's already told this congregation. First of all, he says, I, I perceive that you are victims of self deception. Foolish people who believe themselves to be wise are self-deceived in the worst way. It is as though Paul is saying to them, can you really believe splitting the church over personal preferences pleases God? If you believe that, you are self-deceived. Do you really think bickering and arguing about your favorite preacher or teacher makes you look wise, gives you moral superiority. If you believe that, you are self-deceived. 
Can you not see that your division is creating exactly the opposite of what Christ prayed for, for his followers possessed when he said, Lord, make them one. Make them understand oneness like you and I are one. And division and strife does not meet that goal. So then, he says, no more boasting about mere mortals. I like the way he gets down to the final summary remedy for this. He's spent up to the third chapter so far talking about their division. And when he finally gets down to it, he says, stop it. <laughs> you remember that video I had up a few years ago? Just stop it. It's enough. We're not going to do this anymore. Now, there's two, there's two stop-its. One stop-it is you're doing it, stop it. The other stop-it is you're not doing it, stop it from happening. Don't let it start. I'm going to say it again because I haven't got to say this at every church I've ever pastored. But I get to say it here. We have a happy church. We get along. We love each other. And as for divisions and strife, stop it. Not because you're doing it, but because you have accepted the responsibility of not letting it start. That's the sense in which we stop it. We're going to stop this before it starts. I have examples in my mind that I remember in the 10 years that I've been here where you have understood this is a church that you have authority in. You have investment in. You care about. In a very, very cautious sense, you call it my church. We know it's Jesus' church. But in a, it's, it's something you belong to. You have skin in the game. And I've seen you people look at situations where something was brewing, and I've seen you stop it. See, I can't do it by myself. There's a lot of stuff that goes on under the radar. I never know it until somebody thinks they're doing me a favor to come sit in my office and say, guess what I heard somebody else say about you? Just thought you wanted to know. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know... Almost always I'll say, what did you do to stop it? Oh, I didn't do anything. I don't have that kind of authority. Oh, yes, you do. I've or How many times have I ordained you from this pulpit? You know, do I have to stand you, raise your right hand? You are now ordained. But, but so enough of you get it that you appreciate the fact that this is a happy church. I hope there's a lot of happy churches in, in the Quad Cities. I hope there is. I know this is one. And it's because the laity has taken it upon themselves to stop it before the enemy can start it. And that's where the success really lies. See, and then Paul says there's no caste system in Christ. Everything belongs to you. You know what that means? When he says, uh, you know, it's uh, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or, die, life or death or the present or the future, what he's saying is, it's all equal. There's no caste system. There's no spiritual elites in the church. There's no beggars in the church. You're, uh, everything that the church has as a blessing, everything as an asset belongs to the lowest person, belongs to the highest person. Everything belongs to you. 
Everything doesn't belong to the upper crust in the church. Everything belongs to everybody. No caste system. And he says, furthermore, let me tell you this. With reference to your bickering and your fighting and your division and your choosing your favorite people, you people who have elected me, you don't belong to Paul. Because remember when he started off in the first chapter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Now he gets down to the third chapter and he finally addresses this. He said, let me, let me set the record straight. You don't belong to me. And you don't belong to Apollos. And you don't belong to Cephas. You belong to Jesus. Everything belongs to you, and you all belong to Christ. And Christ, may I remind you, belongs to God. And anything that breaks up that system breaks up the family. You know why we're family? Because we're all equals. We're all equals in Christ. And the minute we begin to think that we're better than one another, or even the minute we begin to feel inferior to others in the church, that's where sickness comes into the family. Once we lose the concept of being a family, we lose the strength of the church. Keep the unity of the faith. Bow your heads.